So, the first thing is hearing the Dhamma and gaining faith. Um, somebody asked me one time, what do you have to believe to be a Buddhist? Right? What do you have to believe to be a Buddhist? And my answer was, you have to believe there's something you can do that will make your life better. Right? You don't have to believe... You don't have to believe Four Noble Truths, Dependent Origination, Walking on Water, Flying Through the Air, none of that stuff. You just have to believe there's something you can do to make your life better. If you don't believe there's anything you can do to make your life better, you're not going to practice. So you've got to at least have that much... This is sada, confidence. You've got to have confidence that there's something you can do to make your life better. So... Basically, what the Buddha is saying is that one hears his teachings and gains faith that, oh, not only there, there is something I can do, this is something I can do. So, right? They've got a, a direction, basically. All right? this, is, this is a practice I can undertake. And it seems worthwhile to devote a certain amount of time to it. Now... At the time of the Buddha, yeah, the, the expected thing was to become a monk or a nun. We're living in a different culture. The expected thing is to make spiritual practice a priority in your life. You know, you, you read a Dhamma book every year, and uh, maybe you come to a, a couple sati center things, and you come here for, you know, Sunday morning, at least, you know, three or four times a year. Yeah, it's not going to work. It's, it's going to take some priority. You're going to have to devote enough of your time and energy at this that it's, it's going to take up a lot of things. You're going to have to give up an hour of TV. You're going to have to give up, you know, going to Hawaii because you've got to go on retreat or whatever. So the hearing the Dhamma and gaining faith Part of the faith that's gained is enough, enough energy that you're going to actually devote yourself to the spiritual practice. Okay? The second thing is keeping the precepts. The precepts don't get talked about that much in you know, what we talk, think of as standard Vipassana. And yet they're absolutely important. This is the foundation on which you build all the rest of your practice. Integrity is absolutely essential. Uh, Think about the word integrity. Integral, integrate. these, These words, they're all coming from the same root. Integrity is about integrating yourself into, well, life. Right? Integrating yourself into the culture in which you find yourself, integrating yourself into the sangha in which you find yourself, integrating yourself into the practice. And so integrity is what's necessary to, yeah, to be able to do all of the cool stuff like, you know, jhanas and insight practice and everything else. You've got to ha- be coming from a basis of integrity. I would say that integrity means leading your life in such a way that there's no even desire to break one of the precepts. The one that, the one that gets people in most trouble is the one about speech. Right? You're leading a life that has so much integrity that you never feel compelled to lie about what's going on. Right? You're leading a life that has such integrity that, you know, you don't feel like you have to kill somebody or steal something or anything like that. You're leading a life with such integrity that there's no sexual misconduct happening. So this is the foundation. These, These four precepts are really the foundation of how you're going to relate to everybody in the world. Now, if you're paying careful attention... You notice that after I did the stuff on speech, I talked about not stepping on plants or seeds as opposed to the precept about 
the intoxicants, right? The fifth precept that we take is I undertake the training to refrain from intoxicants. This is one of the things that is a key to letting us know that this teaching on the precepts found in this sutta is probably early. The precept on intoxicants is one of the later precepts that the Buddha had to make. You're all aware that when he started out, he didn't have any precepts. You know, he goes and he sees his five ascetic friends and he gives them the, the first sermon and they get to stream entry over the next few weeks, one when he gives the sermon, and then he gives them the second discourse on not-self and they all become arhats. You know, arhats don't need precepts, right? They're going to act with integrity in everything that they do. And he, he gets more followers and they all become arhats. But eventually he gets followers who are misbehaving and he goes, oh, guys, you can't do that. All right, I'm going to make a rule. And so the precepts developed over time. One of the later precepts was the precept on intoxicants. Because what happened was someone went to have a meal with a family, a lay, some lay followers, and drank some fermented beverage and passed out on the way back to the monastery and fell asleep in the middle of the street. <laughs> and this reflected rather poorly on the Sangha. And so the Buddha made the precept, no, you can't, you can't have intoxicants. But that was much later. So... Since we have this preserved without that precept, it appears to have been something that was quite early in the Buddha's ministry. So that's one of the hints. As lay people, yeah, we need to avoid intoxicants. On that first retreat that I did with Ayakema back in 95, 85, she said, we are confused enough already. We don't need to ingest anything that makes us more confused. And that's really, really important. The first four precepts are about taking care of others. And the fifth precept is about taking care of yourself. You don't want to ingest fermented beverages. But you also don't want to ingest, well, um, anything that's going to cause you harm. Whether it be, you know, Hollywood movies, terrible TV programs, trashy novels, uh, the internet, I mean, there's a lot of ways out there that you can do harm to yourself, right? So pay attention to what you're ingesting and see, see what's going on. In keeping the fifth, fifth precept, it makes it a whole lot easier to keep the other precepts. So again, it's part of integrity, okay? So now the actual sutta has far more precepts mentioned than I actually uh, spoke about when I was telling you the story. And it's quite interesting. Most of them are relevant to the monks and nuns. Uh, some of them have relevance to lay people. Uh, but it talks about not being a children's doctor. It doesn't mean that being a children's doctor is uh, a wrong livelihood or anything. It's monks and nuns aren't supposed to be children's doctors. Okay, so if you read the sutta and read the three sections on morality, I just gave you basically the essence of the first section. Don't, don't misunderstand what's being said there. Remember, this is for monks and nuns, uh, some of the things that are in there. And some of them, like telling fortunes and so forth. Yeah, I think everybody should have not tell fortunes. Okay? So the, the precepts are really foundational. In doing some research for this, I found 80, 80 suttas where the precepts are discussed. It is a very important thing. They seem to, the precepts seem to show up uh, probably as frequently as almost any other topic that gets discussed. And it's a really important part of the spiritual path. So, any questions on the precepts? Okay, the, the mic. Who's got the mic? All right. So my question is about, I think it's one of the eight precepts. Well, it's the entertainments. Mm -hmm. is, it, is it the same one that's like entertainments, adornments, yeah. and beautification or something like that? Is that all? Uh, so with the eight precepts, the beautifying and the entertainments are lumped together. Right. Right. Anyway. 
for the ten precepts that are split apart. <laughs> okay. Well, my main question is about entertainments. Um, what <laughs> and mantra? So, I do find that my mind wants to get busy, um, or relax, or escape, and um, you know. I like um, mm-hmm. British uh, costume dramas, right? <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, high quality entertainment. <laughs> <laughs> so, but I think about what is what are what are my alternatives here? Here, I find seriously. Yeah, no, I, I find understand. myself at that moment, and that's the the craving I have. Yeah, and um, right. I think, well, you know, should I just start practicing a mantra and, and block my mind from, I don't know. Yeah. Any thoughts? All right. So the first five are non-negotiable, right? You can't go around killing people, right? You can't go around killing, you know? I mean, the, these are pretty much what you got to do. The others for lay people are things that are helpful to take on from time to time. Traditionally, you would take on the eight precepts on the full moon and the new moon. You might take it on, say, on the quarter moon. So basically once a week, you give up entertainments, right? And you just devote the whole day to practice. Would be the, the way that a lay person would take this on. Now, you want to take it deeper? Then you start giving up entertainments more than just once a week. And when you get good enough, yeah, you, you give up the entertainments totally. But... If it feels like it doesn't work to give up entertainments, that you're hating it and so forth, this is not useful, right? You, you, you really need to find uh, some... You really need to find some way of taking on the m- more strenuous practices in a way that feels right for you. Does that make sense? Yeah. All right. So, another question on the precepts. So, on the same topic, I've been noticing uh, I have different motivation, two different motivations for seeking, uh, for like watching a movie. Mm-hmm. One is a desire to uh, basically to self-medicate. Mm-hmm. Uh, in other words, uh, an absorbing entertainment can be an intoxicant. Yes. And the other motivation is it's some quality thing that will um, be enriching in a way. Mm-hmm. And so I've been finding more and more that it's, uh, watching less and less garbage TV as time goes on. Yeah. That, that's really important is that when you sit down to do something that clearly isn't going to promote your advancement on the spiritual path, what's behind that? Why do you feel compelled to do that? Is it a need to escape? I mean, sometimes, yeah, you come home from work, you've had a really horrible day, you just need to escape. Well, much better to escape in a British costume drama than a bottle of booze, right? But sometimes, yeah, you got to escape. And all right, so you got to escape. Know that that's what you're doing and know that, okay, you turned it on, you watched that one thing, is this enough? Can you now turn this off and do something a little higher? I've also been noticing that when it's something quality like that, I can be entertained mindfully mm-hmm. uh, more so. Yeah. I mean, I get absorbed in it, but it's not total. Just Right. Uh, yeah. Uh, one of the teachers I studied with was Ruth Dennison. And after one retreat, she took us dancing. You know, And it was like, okay, okay, darlings, get up and dance mindfully. And it was a really interesting thing. It was a very... It was a very good teaching because I got experience of being in a place where you could really be mindless and trying to keep the mindfulness up. And it was very helpful for taking mindfulness off the cushion. So yeah, the keeping the precepts is at the bottom line. Here are things you just can't do. But at a higher level is, all right, what am I actually doing and is it supporting my spiritual growth? And sometimes it's like, yeah, well, right now I don't have the energy to support my spiritual growth. I've got to watch this 
whatever it is on TV. And more and more, the, uh, the concept of unsatisfactoriness. Yeah. I'm finding the intoxicating TV to just be unsatisfactory. Right. This is why it's really mindful to have, mi you know, have mindfulness going all the time. Really important to have mindfulness going all the time. Because a lot of the stuff that we habitually do, we do it habitually. And when you look at it, it's like, yeah, it really, it really isn't that rewarding or anything. And that makes it easier to drop it. Yeah. Now can you pass the mic back? Yeah, as a lay follower, um, I think I'm having a hard time with uh, the first precept with killing, you know, like killing insects, not killing people, obviously. Yeah. But uh, when I see ants and bugs in my house, mm -hmm. I, I usually just, you know, get rid of them, you know. But lately, whenever I do that, I feel guilty. Yeah, yeah. So... I'm kind of torn between what is the right thing to do. Yeah, this is a tricky one. Yeah, I, I remember one place where the ants invaded, and it was like, oh no, I got to do something about this. You know, tried, tried wiping them up, you know, and they're right back, and you know. And when I finally got out the bug spray, it hurt, you know, and I killed them, and it. You know, I mean, I still remember it. Used to be, yeah, you kill a bug, you never thought about it. But now it's having an impact on me. And after I had taken care of it, it was like, all right, now, what can I do to not encourage them to come in? You know, I, I can't leave the dirty dishes in the sink anymore. I've got to do everything I can where I'm not going to be attracting the insects. And so... Yeah, I killed those ants, but maybe I saved the life of more ants because after that I was more responsible in terms of not making it a place where the ants would want to come in. Um, so yeah, it, it's difficult. It's, it's difficult as a lay person to, I mean, if you've got termites in your house, what are you going to do? Oh, I'll just let the house fall down on top of me. Remember, it's a training. I undertake the training to refrain from killing living beings. And as you get more and more deeply in the path, it becomes easier and easier to not do the killing. But yeah, snails in the garden and ants in the kitchen comes up over and over again on the retreats I teach. So yeah, and you just got to work with it as best you can. Somebody, I think, has an even better suggestion. The thing is with the precepts, you know, many people think it's a passive thing. It comes along. I'm not going to kill. Uh, I'm not going to lie. But you, if you really want to develop, you got to be proactive and think ahead. And like, like with, with the insects, with the ants, I wipe my kitchen down with peppermint oil. I heard works and seems mm -hmm. to be uh, keeping them away. Um, but the same thing with your speech. If you're going to go to a party and you know you're going to gossip and do stuff like that, you got to prepare yourself ahead of what's coming instead of getting there you do all this gossiping oh boy I shouldn't have done that so you have to be really proactive of, uh, to develop the precepts right yeah the precepts have to be enough of a priority that you're taking care of it all the time not just in the moment yeah very good very good so for me that all gets even more complicated uh, for example We've hired people to drive around in cars with guns and protect us. Uh, the uh, Tibet had an army that resisted the Chinese invasion, <laughs> an army. Um, so there's this whole, it seems to be this whole uh, gray area between uh, just going out and just killing people and how much uh, more of a self-defense kind of thing. And, at Spirit Rock, I just noticed there's an upcoming event uh, with somebody whose main main expertise is as a martial artist. Mm -hmm. And so, if you can see my confusion, can you? Yeah. Okay. This is fairly easily resolved. Don't kill anybody. You personally. Okay. And do what you can to educate people in the culture about 
Yeah, whatever you can for enabling them to keep precepts. You know, pointing out the fact that, yeah, well, everybody can have a gun in this culture and it leads to a lot of death, right? That perhaps everybody having a gun isn't such a wise thing to do. Um, but it's about you taking care of yourself and then educating other people as appropriate. Remember the, the Buddha said, if you know something that is true but not helpful, don't say it. If you know something that's helpful but not true, don't say it. If it's not helpful or not true, don't say it. But if it's true and helpful, find the right time to say it and say it with a loving heart. So, yeah, we have a police force here. If you're actually going to keep the, the first precept, then it's going to be difficult to be a policeman. You, 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 you may find that doesn't work real well and you well, need another... Even calling the police, though. Uh, you're, yeah. you're inviting them into the situation. Right. And you've got to look at the Buddha. I mean, he was friends with kings who had armies, who attacked other people and so forth. Uh, and he didn't try and say, no, you can't have an army. What the Buddha did was he took the culture in which he lived and he said, all right, any of you people living in this culture want to get out of Dukkha, I got something for you. You're going to have to let go of a lot of what goes on in this culture. And that's exactly what we have to do as well. We want to educate as best we can to try and reform the culture. But, you know, the, the one person you actually have some chance of reforming that will actually listen to you is yourself. Everybody else, yeah, when you get a chance, you put it out there. But the one you can really work on is yourself. Okay. Can, I, can I offer a slightly, well, in my view, what works with precepts is, I think Gil talked about this last Sunday, when, when this should mind becomes very strong, it can become a little very guilty and a lot of thinking, and, and, and the idea that he, that I heard from him, which I thought was very powerful, is to keep practicing, 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 and you get to a stage where it is a more natural expression right. of yourself to not break the precepts and it becomes a little less moralistic and I think if I understood correctly that's how the Buddha kind of right. framed it as well yeah. like, if you do this you start out by yeah okay these are the rules I've got to follow and then it gets to the point where yeah you're just following the rules without even thinking about them being rules okay so just slightly on the topic of yeah great king one who is possessed of moral dis discipline sees no danger anywhere in regard to his restraint by moral discipline. Just as a head-anointed noble warrior who has defeated his enemies sees no danger anywhere from his enemies, so too one who, has, who possesses moral discipline sees no danger anywhere in regard to his moral discipline. All right? So the Buddha wasn't even against using similes that had you know, sort of a violent overtone to him. A warrior who's defeated his enemies. All right. um, endowed with the noble aggregate of moral discipline, he experiences within himself a blameless happiness. In this way, one is, is possessed of moral discipline. Okay, so the next one is guarding the senses. Guarding the senses does not mean you don't look, you don't hear, etc. It says when one sees a form with the eye, one does, one does not grasp at the signs or secondary characteristics. Or here it's translated signs or details. All right? So you see something and you recognize what it is and you don't get lost in fantasy about it. All right? So, to take the nose, you're walking down the street, you pass a bakery. The door is open. Right? So, the smell comes out. The sign is, oh, this is good food. The secondary characteristic would be, if I eat delicious food, it makes me feel good. Right? So you're not grasping at the sign or the secondary characteristics. It doesn't mean you can't enjoy the smell. Right? So the bakery's open. 
You exhale, you inhale, you enjoy the smell, you keep walking. You didn't get caught in grasping at the signs or secondary characteristics. You're walking down the street, you pass the store, you see they have the new iPhone 37 in there, right? It's on sale, right? And you're like, wow, I didn't even know they had an iPhone 37, and you just keep walking. You didn't grasp at the signs, oh, it's the latest one, I've got to have it or the secondary characteristics. I hear that the 37 has got all these new features. I'll be able to, and people will think I'm cool, right? right? You just saw, oh, the iPhone 37 is out, and you let it go, all right? This is what it means by guarding the senses. It's not that you don't walk around not seeing or hearing or smelling. It's that what you see or hear or smell or taste, you don't get lost in it, not in the thing itself, or in the downstream possibilities of the thing itself. Okay? So, the Buddha was not against, you know, you're seeing what's going on. He was against you getting lost. Um, I'm going to read a little bit here from Majjhima 75. Uh, what do you think, Magandhya? Here's someone who had formerly enjoyed himself with forms cognizable by the eye that are wished for, desired, agreeable, likable, connected with sensual desire and provocative of lust. On a later occasion, having understood as they actually are the origin, the disappearance, the gratification, the danger, and the escape in, in the case of forms cognizable by the eye, one abandons craving for forms, removes fever for forms, abides without thirst, with a mind inwardly at peace. Right? So the Buddha's not saying you don't see. You see the stuff that formerly attracted you, but you've removed the craving that's associated with it. There's no thirst, no getting lost, etc. This is what the guarding of the senses is about. Now, <clears throat> It is necessary, until you get good at this, that you don't go putting yourself in situations where there are lots of things that are visually provocative of lust or auditorily provocative of lust or anything else. So you do want to take care of what sort of input you're taking in. And you want to begin to be able to uh, address seeing things that normally would catch you and not be caught by them, okay? And this is about guarding the senses. It's not about not seeing. It's about recognizing, all right, what is my capacity to see and not get lost? And yeah, if you can't go into some place and, and not get lost, then you don't want to go there. And if you do come across something where there would be desire or even great aversion, can you see it and just experience it without getting lost in it? Questions about guarding the senses? In the back. Can you pass the mic to the back? How does one turn off the desire to progress on the path? Yeah. Because <laughs> when I get into access, I find myself anticipating first jhana every time. And it yeah. just never happens. Right. Yeah. So <clears throat> when I was at Watsuan Mok, which was Buddha Dasa's place in southern Thailand, they talked about wise wishes and foolish desires. So the wish to progress on the path is a wise wish. It's a foolish desire to expect that some progress of a specific sort is going to happen right now. Okay. I used to go on retreat with some friends of mine over New Year's, and there was no teacher. All of us were very experienced meditators, and in the evenings, we would interview each other. The, basically, the idea was you practiced all day long, and then we came together, and we went around the room, and there were like eight of us, and each described what their practice had been like that day, and the other seven asked them questions about it, right? It was, it was quite good. And so I showed up one time, and somebody said at the very, when we first got together, okay, let's go around the room and describe our intention for the retreat. And my intention was to show up and see what happens. So 
on the spiritual path, it's very important that you show up, that you fully show up. And it's also really important that you have some good instructions about what to do when you show up. And then it's see what happens. Okay, so my advice would be, yeah, you sit down to meditate, you've got some good instructions. Do them to the best of your ability and see what happens. If you start craving for something to happen and it doesn't happen, that's dukkha, right? So don't get fixated on the results. Pay attention to what the instructions say you should do and do it to the best of your ability. Question over here. It's not on. Um, in regard to guarding the senses, um, what I have read in the suttas, as well as what I see in different uh, Buddhist, you know, groups and schools that practice, is that some tend to. Um, basically avoid the sensual enjoyment, mm -hmm. uh, which I find uh, kind of a dangerous idea. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> um, because I think it leads to fundamentalism. It can lead to all sorts it of things. It can lead to all sorts of things. And it seems that there is a fine line between enjoying your senses and getting lost in them. Mm -hmm. I also come from a culture, I'm Italian, where the idea of basically cutting off any form of sensual enjoyment, be that a piece of cheese, a glass of wine, good music or good conversation uh, would be, or art is abhorrent. Yes. <laughs> and I'm an artist myself. And I'll be completely devoid of any desire, and it's work, it's hard work, to mm -hmm. paint or study new techniques if there wasn't an aesthetic enjoyment. Right, yeah. And mostly people think of, first thing, you know, usually, that they think of regarding sexual enjoyment is sex. Mm -hmm. And there is the whole thing of Buddhist Tantra and all that. It could get quite complicated. But I'm sort of, I'm curious to know from you, uh, who I'm sure I have a, Mm -hmm. vaster knowledge of the sutras than I do, if the Buddha explicitly says to avoid sensual enjoyment or just to be careful around it, right? they're very different things. Yeah. So the first thing I should say, uh, familiar with the three psychological types found in later Buddhism, there's the greed type, the aversive type, the deluded type. Okay, so the greed type walks into a party and it's like, oh, that person looks interesting, that food looks good. An aversive type walks in and goes, that picture's crooked, those colors don't go together. And a deluded type walks in and, what's going on? What should I do? All right, okay. So you may recognize yourself as, you know. I mean, it, we're all deluded. The greed types are deluded because they're seeking pleasure all the time. It's just their delusion shows up as greed. Same with the aversive types. They're, they're deluded because they think that if they push enough away, it'll be okay. All right. So I'm a greed type. So now you're asking me a question. <laughs> right. So the Buddha, in the suttas, you can definitely find, no, don't do any pleasure. You can definitely find that. All right? But you can find anything in the suttas. You know, they say you can prove anything with the Bible. Yeah, the Bible's about this thick. I mean, you go out there and you get all the wisdom publications, you've got a stack like this. You can find anything in there. Right? The Buddha very clearly recognizes that things have gratification. That was one of the words that showed up in, in the thing that I, I read. So sense, sense input, sensory input does have gratification. Okay? He's saying you've got to deal with the gratification. You need to recognize the danger. The danger he talks about is it's not going to give you lasting satisfaction. Right. So if you think, if I buy this piece of art, it's going to make me eternally happy. Oh, well, maybe you don't get quite that outlandish. All right. But if you're tending in that direction and then you buy it 
and there's an earthquake and it falls off the wall and it goes through a vase and it breaks the vase and it also punches a hole in the artwork and you're all upset yeah it didn't provide lasting satisfaction so as a greed type I do have to be really careful about the things that I want and I've also discovered that well Chris Christopherson had some of the best advice ever freedom's just another word for nothing left to lose all right so you know backing off from trying to own it and so forth and I find that if I enjoy when there's pleasure and I don't get lost in it it doesn't seem to produce the sort of problems if I go out you know scrambling for it and everything else now having said this and it's on the tape and for those of you listening out there in digital land remember you're getting this advice from a greed type you might want to check with other people as well <laughs> anything else on guarding the senses uh, let's introduce. Oh. <laughs> um, I think I just wanted to remind all of us that the Buddha spent six years doing aesthetic practices and cutting off everything right and it didn't work yeah and he knew that it didn't work and he found the middle way he did yeah. and so yeah i think that that's key uh, this afternoon when you get to the dreamlike nature of reality <laughs> it will become clear yeah. how all of this is moot right at a certain point in the path yeah yeah, the, the thing to keep in mind is that you have to work with where you are now. And it's, it's, you've got to be tending towards the middle, right? And so if your tendency is to push everything away, yeah, you're actually going to have to deal with stuff. And if your tendency is to get everything, you're going to have to let go of stuff, right? So, yeah, the Buddha found the middle way between sensory indulgence and, yeah, mortification of the flesh. It's tricky. I just wanted to add this. I think I've seen at least two suttas where the Buddha talks about a person who's honest and works really hard and through the sweat of his brow, you know, builds up like a, a company or something. And, and as long as it's done honestly and he's generous with the stuff, it's perfectly okay. Yeah, enjoy, enjoy the, the fruit enjoy of the, the labor. It depends on, on where you are, but the thing is, you know, as a number of teachers have said, and a number of monastics I've heard said, the whole spiritual path comes down to this. Basically, you're replacing one addiction for a more wholesome addiction. Right. Until you get to the point where you're not addicted anymore. But that's what it is. You're basically trading up higher and higher happinesses. As Ajahn Amaro said, the Buddha was a real happiness junkie. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> Very good. I agree with that. <laughs> um, it seems like what's really important where mindfulness comes in is we attain a certain level in our meditation. And then the question is, what is happening after? We, we're on the cushion, a thought comes, we're off the cushion, we see something. What happens? Mm -hmm. Does craving arise? Does ill will arise? This is what happens from yeah. this, when we get something, when we do something what arises with that and right. that, that seems to be yeah that's that's the very important thing is how are you, basically what the buddha was teaching was don't turn off your senses deal with your sensory input in a really healthy way and so if a thought arises yeah and it's ill will you're going to have to deal with that yeah very much so the buddha's strategy was to yeah figure out the way to respond to the incoming sensory input in a way that's healthy doesn't lead to dukkha. Yeah, very good. It also reminds me of a, a quote I've read from Ajahn Chah where he says, uh, he, I think he's talking about a teacup and he's just, yeah. he's saying, when I look at this teacup, I'm already imagining that it's that it's already broken. I've I already see it already I, broken. I see it already broken, and now right. I can actually somehow even more truly enjoy mm -hmm. it because I, I I'm also aware of the impermanence. Yeah. Of the yeah, that, that's an absolutely brilliant teaching. I was on retreat once, and I realized 
this body is already dead. But until it manifests that death, it's a suitable vehicle for, and I'll let you fill in what you're going to use your already dead body for, right? He said, yeah, the cup is already broken, but till it manifests that, I can drink tea out of it. Yeah, it's a brilliant teaching. Okay, so next I'm going to move on to mindfulness. In the passage that I quoted, mindfulness of going forward, going back, looking forward, looking back, going on arms round, getting dressed, accepting the food, eating the food, going to the toilet, speaking, keeping silent, falling asleep, waking up. This occurs in the Satipatthana Sutta. Hopefully everybody's familiar with the Satipatthana Sutta, the Discourse on Mindfulness. Right? And it's one of the body practices. Right? To just be mindful of your bodily activities. My guess is that what we have preserved in the sutta is a stock phrase. That the Buddha may or may not have said that. But whatever he said, it turned into the stock phrase that shows up not only in the two Satipatthana suttas, but in a lot of other teachings on mindfulness. But it's an incredibly important part of the spiritual path. In the Sutta Nipata, which is a collection of 70-something suttas, the last book, has, book five, has 16 suttas in there, and I think it's the next to the last sutta in there. Someone asked the Buddha, how should one view the world so that the king of death does not see one? <laughs> All right? And the Buddha says, view the world as empty, ever mindful. If you don't conceive of a self, the king of death cannot find you. All right, so there's two things here. One is the empty nature, all right, the anatta. But the other is ever mindful. And it caught my attention and I began looking more and more at the teachings in that Book five of the Sutta Nipata, which most of the scholars say is really early material from early in the Buddha's career. Mindfulness is so important. Then I begin looking at mindfulness in other places. This being mindful is, I won't say it's the essence of the path, but if you really want to make real good progress, you're going to have to do this. In modern neuroscience, they've discovered a network that gets engaged when you've got nothing else to do. It's called the default mode network. You might have encountered that. Like when I said we got a 45-minute sitting and you sit down and you're following your breath and then there's all this other stuff going on, right? One of the characteristics of the default mode network is that it engages parts of the brain that have to do with selfing. Think back to a distraction you had during that 45-minute sitting at the start of the day. Did it have anything to do with yourself? Right? Did that come up? I'm going to, I wish I had, you know, something like that. Right? That's the default mode network kicking in. Now, part of the Buddha's strategy for waking up is to penetrate the illusion of self. You're not going to penetrate the illusion of self if you keep reinforcing it all the time. All right? One of the things it seems we need to do on the spiritual path is get our higher quality default than the so-called default mode network, which is engaging the self. What would be a higher quality default than the default mode network? How about mindfulness? How about paying attention to what's happening right here, right now? So you got nothing to do. What if you paid attention to what's going on right here, right now? It's not like there's nothing happening. I mean, you're breathing. That's one thing you could pay attention to, right? There's a hum in the background. Did you notice that? Right? There's the pressure of sitting. Notice the pressure on your seat. Notice the pressure on your feet. You could pay attention to that. There's a lot you could pay attention to that has to do with the here and now. So this mindfulness training is really, really important.
And it's a much broader dimension, I think, than is taught in secular mindfulness. It's about, yeah, you got nothing else to do. Pay attention to what's going on around you. And if you're doing something, pay attention to what you're doing. It's going to go a lot better, right? If you're working with power tools, it's really helpful to pay full attention to working with power tools. That's called being mindful, right? In describing and giving a simile for mindfulness of breathing, the Buddha describes somebody working at a lathe. Right? So when you're paying attention to your breathing, you're supposed to be paying attention. You're supposed to be mindful of your breathing, just like you're mindful when working with power tools. So when you're not sitting in meditation, you're probably going to be doing something with your body. Can you be mindful of what you're doing with your body? Sometimes what you're doing it requires full concentration. You can't be sitting there thinking, oh, I'm moving my little finger as I type the letter H or anything like that, right? You just got to type, right? But a lot of stuff you're doing, you're walking to your car. Can you be fully present with just walking to your car? Can you be fully present of opening the door, right? If you're washing the dishes, can you be fully present with washing the dishes? This is, this is what mindfulness is really about. So it's going to be a lot easier if you're keeping the precepts, Right? This is going to get your mind in a much calmer place. There's going to be less going on. And if you're guarding your senses, again, you're not being overwhelmed with what's coming in. Whatever comes in, you recognize it, you let it go. Or if you need to deal with it, you deal with it mindfully. All right? So you can see how these first three are reinforcing each other. And basically, we're trying to train ourselves to have a new default. And that default is mindfulness all the time. When we start out, it's not a default. We actually have to do the work. That's why it's one of the things given on the path. And if you start doing mindfulness all the time, start finding cues in your environment that say to you, be mindful, then it becomes more and more of a default. I remember when I first met Kamala Masters, she talked about mindfulness as a householder. And one of the things she suggested was, Whenever you encounter a door, use it as a signal to be mindful. And we encounter a lot of doors, sort of randomly through the day. So any door, feel the hardness of the doorknob, feel the amount of energy it takes to turn it, feel the heaviness of the door, feel what it's like to close the door in a nice, mindful, quiet way, right? So you just left your house, now you got the door of the car, deal with the door of the car. Right? You get where you're going. You're going to deal with the door of the car again. You're going into that store. You're going to deal with the door of the store. Right? So you find something that's just a signal. Oh, drop back into mindfulness here. Hopefully, as you dealt with the door of your house as you left it, you were also mindful while you walked to your car. Maybe you kept your mindfulness going for a while. Once you get doors working for you as a mindfulness thing, then find something else. Right? You have to basically look at your life and see what are things that you do not on a regular basis, but on a semi-regular basis. Show up randomly, right? Uh, turning something on and off, right? Can, can you, whenever you turn on your phone, I mean, you're just looking at it to see what time it is. Can you do that mindfully, right? You're turning on a light switch. Can you make that a signal to drop back into mindfulness? This is an extremely important part of what's going on. I'm very pleased that mindfulness has made it, you know, out into the secular world. I can't say I'm totally pleased with all the forms that it's taken out there, but at least it's a start. And if you're serious about the spiritual path, you want to keep taking it to the next level and trying to bring mindfulness in as a replacement for the default mode network. Questions? Comments? Uh, I love that chapter in Jack Kornfield's book, uh, uh, Living Dharma, by Mahasi Saidal, uh, where he breaks down our everyday activities into moments of mindfulness, including uh, uh, be aware of your intention mm-hmm. to move and do something uh, as, your, as that intention is arising. Uh, but yes, when you're 
typing something at the computer. Yeah. <laughs> you know, being aware of your intention to type H as you're typing H um, seems yeah. counterproductive. So, yeah. so choose a level that works best, I guess you're right. saying. What you're trying to do is replace the default mode network. When you're sitting there typing at the computer, you're probably not doing mind wandering. Right? So, all right. You, you, you are fully present with what's going on, so actually you are mindful. Mindfulness isn't saying, I'm typing the letter H. Mindfulness is being fully present. Mindfulness, the word sati has to do with memory. So you're remembering to be here now. And so, yeah, if you're typing, you're probably here now. Okay. This answers it perfectly. Great, thanks. Okay, good. I did want to quickly follow up on that. And, you know, there seems to be, and the Buddha talks about, you know, you, you, you're sitting and you know you're sitting and you're breathing in long and you know you're breathing in long. Mm -hmm. So when I'm typing at the computer, I might just be, I might be fully immersed, but I, I'm not necessarily knowing yeah. that I'm fully immersed. So, okay. Yeah, okay. Yeah, I asked this question of Ayakema, and she said, don't worry about it. As long as you're fully present with what you're doing, you're doing it right. Mindfulness isn't knowing that you're doing something. It's being fully present with what you're doing. Now, it is very helpful in many cases to be fully present by knowing what you're doing. But you sit down and you start typing. Yeah. Just as long as you're fully there. I'm a computer programmer. Me. <laughs> I'm not sure it's on. So... Uh. So I'm a computer programmer, and I spent large parts of the day absorbed in kind of this galaxy mm -hmm. in my mind, not aware of my own existence. It's like being in a movie, in a way, mm -hmm. absorbed in a movie. And, and I've noticed, for me, that there's something I think of as productive absorption and escape absorption. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But when I'm productively absorbed, I'm not aware of my own existence. I'm not aware of what I'm doing. I'm, I'm, this I'm is do not a problem. Yeah. Yeah. It, it doesn't feel like one. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I, I just... Yeah. Being mindful isn't going around saying, I'm doing this, I'm doing that. Being mindful is being fully present with what you're doing. Okay? Sometimes it's really helpful to say, I'm doing this, I'm doing that. Right? But other times, yeah, you're, you're just simply fully present with what's going on because what's going on is absorbing enough to keep you fully there so no problem yeah yeah this was this was one i had problem with when i first started out as well and now you came to explain no when you're fully there programming it that's mindfulness yeah Let's see another hand back here pass the mic back that way how how does mindfulness um relate to um awakening Okay, so awakening would mean that there's no more dukkha. No more dukkha would mean there's no more craving. The Buddhist strategy for getting rid of craving is to uproot the craver, the delusion that there's somebody here who's going to get whatever. Mindfulness is engaging other parts of your brain and your mind that isn't so associated with the sense of self and the craving. So instead of running the default mode network, which is reinforcing the sense of self, there's just paying attention here to what's going on. So mindfulness has two functions. One, you much more clearly see what's going on and you see that things aren't giving you lasting satisfaction. And two, you're not running the parts of your brain having to do with selfing such that you keep reinforcing the sense of the craver who's someday going to get it all. So it's, it's working to find better stuff to be engaged in and it's working to prevent you from being engaged in a part of your brain that isn't very useful, the, the selfing part. Does that help? So are we saying that um, mindfulness can help you to realize that there is no self? Mm -hmm. it's, it's not going to take you all the way by itself. At the end of the Satipatthana Sutta, there's the guarantee, right? And the guarantee is that if you do this for seven years, six years, five years, four years, three years, two years, one year, seven months, six months, five, four, three, two, one, 
two weeks, seven days, one will achieve one of two things, either full awakening or the third stage of awakening. The third stage of awakening, there's still a sense of self. So it can't take you all the way. You've got to gain insight in that. But it's going to be really, really, really helpful for gaining those insights as well. Okay, thank you. You've got to do more than just be mindful. Yeah. You've got to, well, <laughs> I laid it all out there. All right, so we're going to run just slightly over because I want to cover the contentment aspect. So one is content with food, clothing, shelter, and medicine. This works great if you're a monastic. If you're a layperson living in Silicon Valley, you're probably going to need more than food, clothing, shelter, and medicine if you're sick. All right? But being content with what you've got is really important and is really a struggle in this culture. This culture, basic, the basic message of 21st Western culture is if you're not totally satisfied at the moment, buy this. It'll do it for you, right? I mean, you go out into the world and what's out there is somebody trying to part you from your money. And they don't want to just steal it. I mean, there's a few people doing that. But they want to give you something. They want to tap into the fact that you're not content at the moment and they've got something that they promise will make you content if you'll just give them some money. Right? And we live in a culture that's going exactly the opposite direction from what the Buddha was teaching. The Buddha is saying, you want to be content? Well, freedom's just another word for nothing left to lose. You've got to let go. The more you can let go and still be content, the happier you will be. Right? Now, this is quite a challenge to go against what the culture is basically trying to push on us. You've got to be mindful. You've got to be fully enough present so that when somebody comes along and wants to part you from your money, you realize, oh, this is somebody trying to part me from my money. They're offering contentment in the form of the iPhone 87 or whatever it is, right? But you really don't need a lot of stuff. What do you actually need to survive living like you live in this culture? And can you actually manage to find ways to need even less? Right? Do you need a new car? Right? Do you need a new iPhone? Do you, you know, the list is endless. And contentment is, yeah, I've got what I need. I personally am far richer, far richer than Donald Trump. Okay? Because being rich isn't about what you have. It's about what you need or want. And those who don't want much, they're the really rich people. You know, somebody who's got $10 billion and wants more. The Koch brothers... These guys are billionaires and they're trying so hard to get more. Do you think they're happy? Okay. Um, the wealthy people don't need anything else. It doesn't matter how much they got. They just really don't need anything else. All right. So if you want to be fabulously wealthy, all you have to do is cut back on what you need. Be content with little. This is the whole key to living a really fulfilling life, whether you get to awakening or not. It's about coming to terms with what you actually need and figuring out a way to get your needs met. And as it turns out, you don't really need a whole lot more than food, clothing, shelter, and medicine. All right? Now, yeah, I've got more than food, clothing, shelter, and medicine. I got a Kindle right here, you know. <laughs> but you don't need what the culture tells you because the culture is just trying to part you from your money. Actually, if you want to be happy, you have to be somebody that actually is really bad for this culture because you're not a consumer. 
Right? But what do you want to be? A consumer or happy? Right? So freedom's just another word for nothing left to lose. Okay? Happiness is just being content with whatever you've got. Not in the sense of, oh yeah, then I'm gonna make do with this, but being genuinely happy with what you've got. All right, so questions. Being a modest consumer, I believe, also helps to sustain what is good in the culture. This is because the culture is built in such a fashion that, yeah, it depends on there being consumption. And it's going to be really hard to live as a layperson in this culture without consuming, at least to some degree. But, yeah, keep it as modest as you possibly can. It's a weird culture we live in. I mean, I really want to read a history of the 21st century that was written 500 years from now, you know, and see what they say. But I don't think I'm going to live that long. So. One thing I remember is <clears throat> people were happier during, let's say, the 1940s and so on because they weren't big consumers. Right. They saved, and when they needed something, they bought. And occasionally, they had something that was fun, enjoyable, in order to uh, create a, a grand occasion for people. Yeah. yeah. I took a three-year trip around the world. One of the first places I went was Samoa. And I'm living with a family. They had a roof over their head. They had no walls. You know, in Samoa, you don't have walls. You just got a roof if you're living traditional style. If it gets really rainy, they'll put down a, a blind on the side where the wind's blowing in, maybe. Um, and I remember, these people are as happy as anybody in San Francisco. They didn't have, the only wheeled vehicle on the island was a kid's toy, a stick with a wheel on the end of it. They didn't even have a wheelbarrow where they're building the church. And they said to me, more alofi, more money, you know, pointing to themselves. We have more love. You've got more money. And they didn't want to swap. Yeah. And so I started looking. I'm really glad that came first to see these people are happy and they don't have anything. Once basic survival is taken care of, you know, you, you feel secure in your food, clothing, shelter, medicine. Happiness had nothing to do with what you had beyond that. Nothing. And that actually, if you had a lot beyond that, you were probably going to be less happy. Yeah. Yeah. And, and as Steve says, scientifically, they've discovered that, yeah, my little anthropology thing with it was correct. Well, since you quote Chris Christofferson, I want to quote Porgy and Bess, that line, um, I got plenty of nothing, nothing's plenty for me. Yes, yes, exactly. And everybody remembers, hopefully, that when they had the uh, fundraiser for IRC, they auctioned off nothing. <laughs> the winners of the auction, yeah, they're really happy people. They got, they got nothing. Yes. <laughs> Okay, question in the back. Question, just a oh, wait, wait, we need the microphone. The recording will pick it up. Now, where's the button? The infamous button. It's on. It's on. Oh, it's on. <coughs> okay. I just have a comment um, about <coughs> you saying that people that have nothing except food, clothing, shelter, and medicine are the happiest. Um, and sometimes they don't even have medicine, and they're happy. Uh, yeah. When I was trekking in Nepal, we trekked through these little villages that had no electricity, no running water, no plumbing, and we had porters carry our big loads of stuff while we hiked with a bottle of water, maybe a day pack, on very difficult terrain. It was all rocks and, you know, yeah. very difficult. Okay, <clears throat> our porters were little guys... They wore flip-flops on this terrain. They wore rags. And when we got to camp at the end of the day, 
they would laugh and sing. And play, so one of them played a, a primitive instrument, and they were all dancing. Yeah. And that, to me, illustrated what you said. It gives me chills. I really saw it. And it was very moving. Yeah, yeah. I actually did go to the Himalayas and went trekking. And yeah, those people back there in the middle of nowhere, some of them were, yeah, really, really happy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So be mindful of the culture out there. It's insane. <laughs> okay, speaking of the culture out there, it's now 12.22, an hour for lunch. That that right? Okay, so... Yeah, so at 122 we'll be back, and we'll have a sitting from 122 until 2 o'clock, right? And then we'll cover the rest of it, all right? So announcements or anything? Yeah.